0: You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. Hey, well, good morning. Good to be with you. You know, in the 1940s, when jazz music in America was evolving, there arose a form of jazz. It was extremely difficult to play, increasingly complex and crazy, and they called it bebop. And this style of jazz, you may know, is very fast, complex harmonies, lots of dissonance and syncopation. It's really uh, not for anyone besides jazz musicians. It's quite hard to follow and appreciate if you're not a jazz musician. And that was the problem. Because what happened was most regular people didn't like this sort of high form of bebop jazz. So to make a living as a jazz musician, you had to play more regular, accessible music for the people. So what developed within this group of bebop uh, jazz musicians is this slang of the word square. Right? Right? So the cool musicians were the ones who understood and appreciated and could play this complex music and didn't sell out and play regular music. And everybody outside was square, right, was lesser. Now that's just one example of something that we humans always naturally do. That's a negative example, but it's a normal thing that we group together with people that we can identify with. And again, the the example of bebop jazz is a rather snooty and negative example, but underneath it is something that's very natural and very understandable, that we all get a lot of our sense of who we are, our self, our identity, and our purpose from the groups that we're identified with. We all make sense of our lives and we understand ourselves through the lens of the groups that we're connected with. So if you're on a football team, that becomes a big part of your identity. If you're a certain country club member, or if you're a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, a pastor, a meteorologist, a tennis player, a backpacker, a fly fisher, a Costco member. Can I get an amen for Costco members? If you're a Corvette owner or a Man City versus Man U person or a gang member or all the way up to races and ethnicities. And countries. All of these groups that we're identified with become a huge part of our very identity, and they then affect how we live. In psychology, the study of this is called social identity theory, and what social identity theory recognizes is that our habits, our loves, our hates, our convictions, our beliefs, our practices, our attitudes are largely shaped by the groups that we come to identify with. Now again, that can be very negative because unfortunately sinful humanity regularly turns this good thing, which is our, our natural tendency toward community, it often turns it into hatred towards the other, towards other ethnicities or countries or despising of those that we think of as lesser. But it doesn't have to be negative. It actually is a very natural positive thing that we come to understand ourselves through our group. So if a student comes to identify with other good and serious students who take school seriously, they grow up into that and become a better student themselves. When a golfer starts spending time with other golfers, this changes their habits potentially. Maybe they wear nicer clothing or they're outside more, more physically fit, whatever it is. When a person gets involved in a charitable organization that, say, fights human trafficking or helps fund research for childhood cancer, that shapes their habits and financial decisions and their awareness of others and their compassion, that's all good. And when we become a disciple of Jesus Christ... A follower of him, we enter into a new group. We enter into a new community that should and does affect us and shape us and change us. And we know from the Bible that the ultimate change agent is God's own spirit living in us, but the way through which he does that is by putting us into a new community of believers. We are naturally social creatures and God has designed us so that our identity and our habits and our attitudes are shaped and fitted together in the body of Christ as we walk together arm in arm following Christ, our teacher. Now I'm talking about this foundational human reality because as we're preaching through Matthew, we have come to the last section before The last week of Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 21 and following all the rest of it will be the last week of Jesus' life But here we are in Matthew 18 to 20 That is the last section before Jesus enters Jerusalem and what happens in these chapters? Well for the whole story of Jesus He has been calling people to repent to turn from one way of seeing and being in the world and start to follow his way He invites us to take his yoke upon us so that he can guide and shape us in the ways of the heavenly father and the ways of the coming kingdom because he knows that the only place where we will find life is when we are following in his way with his people. And now here in this last stage of his ministry in chapters 18 to 20, he gives a crucial set of instructions for our life together for what this new community of Christian life should look like. And Jesus is intentionally painting a picture for us of a new social identity, an identity that supersedes our jobs, our educational levels, our gender, our social and economic status, our races, our ethnicities, our nationalities. The Christian identity, according to Jesus, is what we really are. And so we come together, slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female, all nations, all educational levels, we come together into one new social community that is the people of Christ. And that's what unites us. And so what he gives us in these three chapters, and we're just gonna be looking at chapter 18 today, is the first couple of steps towards what it looks like to live as part of the Christian community. And I'll tell you what he's gonna say. He's gonna say two things. One is... The valuing of the humble and the lowly and living in relationships of forgiveness and reconciliation. So let's turn there. If you have a Bible, you can look at Matthew 18. We'll put some of the verses on the screen. We're covering a huge chapter, so we won't put it all up there. But you can pull up on your phone or if you have a Bible with you. Let's look at Matthew 18 and see what does Jesus say the Christian community looks like. First one, again, valuing the humble and the lowly the first thing Jesus addresses is pretty unexpected, that the Christian community is marked by valuing the humble and the lowly. And this comes up because, and Matthew sets up the story, because just a few days after what had happened in Matthew 16 and 17, the disciples come to Jesus with a question. And the reason they come to him is because back in chapter 16 and 17, they finally understood who Jesus was, that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, which means for them, he's the king. And so he's bringing the kingdom of God upon the earth. And then Peter, James, and John even got to see a little glimpse of that with the transfiguration. And so now they're, they're very pumped about this. And so they come to him in the beginning of chapter 18, and they ask him this question. Look at verse one. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So all they're thinking about is he's the king, he's bringing the kingdom, and now the second thought is, well, then who's going to be the greatest after Jesus in this kingdom? Now, remember, just two chapters earlier, Jesus had said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. But they still don't fully get it. And so they ask Jesus an entirely human question, okay, Cool that we're in the kingdom, that's awesome. But who will actually be the greatest in the kingdom? After all, you did take Peter, James, and John on that special mountain retreat and they won't tell us what happened. It seems like a bit of an inner circle here. Who's your favorite kid, dad, right? So what's Jesus' response to their question? We'll look at verse two. So he called a little child to him and he placed the child among them and he said, truly I tell you, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And we're probably so familiar with this story and maybe we've seen pictures or drawings of Jesus, you know, with the little child in front of him, that I don't think we can appreciate how shocking of an answer this is. Like if you and I were to ask, apart from this story, who's, who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I think we'd have some other more obvious answers. Well, the most gifted speakers or the super spiritual ones or the most conservative people or the smartest the most educated or the ones who give the most money to the church. Or the men and women who are already successful in the rest of life, well, of course, they're gonna be the most important people in the church as well. Or the hippest, non-square people with the largest social media following and the hottest snarky takes on every cultural issue. But no, Jesus doesn't say it's any of those people. Who's the greatest in God's eyes? Who's the greatest in God's economy in the Christian community? The humble, the lowly, the childlike, and the ones who value that and protect those as well. Now, if you're a parent of toddlers or have been a parent of toddlers, you may think this is a rather odd illustration, right? I mean, the last thing we want is a church full of temper tantrum throwing, um, you know, selfish, immature children. And unfortunately, that is often the, the case with children. I, but it's obvious that that's not Jesus' point. The point of Jesus' illustration of a child is not that children are faultless, they're often petty and envious. The point I think, is that Jesus is inviting us to look at what is beautiful and good about a child that should be true of us. And I think I think of a child before the cynicism of life sets in, before the habits of self-protection and all the false self masks that we learn to put on, all the conniving modes that we learn as adults, before all of that is kicked in. Children, a child is tender and and wholeheartedly affectionate. When I mean, there's nothing like a four-year-old running up and giving you a kiss, right? This wholehearted affection, full of trust, not motivated by self-conscious angling, but simple and trusting, happily dependent on others and hopeful. I think this is the picture that Jesus is trying to say, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. And he's saying this humble and lowly and dependent and trusting way is what every Christian is called to because it's true of him himself. Do you remember what he said back in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the vision Jesus gives. Now, In the rest of what happens in this first section of Matthew 18, in verses 6 to 14, more more there than we have time to walk through, but it's all part of the same key idea, that the Christian community is marked by the humble and the lowly and the valuing of them. In fact, the implication, you can read it this afternoon in verses 6 to 14, of this is that Jesus says that we must be extremely careful that we honor and don't run over the humble and lowly people, that we don't denigrate them or fail to recognize them, or especially that we don't fail to protect the humble and lowly and vulnerable. In fact, in those verses, Jesus gives one of the strongest warnings of anywhere in the Bible. He says, "For though if we don't take care of the little ones, it'd be better if we were drowned, he says. And I think the application of, of this first thing Jesus is saying about what the Christian community should look like, I think the application to us Christians is important that we need to reevaluate who we think is the most important and who gets the honor in the church. Because according to Jesus, it's people whose character is marked by humility that is far more important than gifts, even spiritual gifts. Just go read 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 far more important than the people with the biggest bank accounts or the most powerful perks in society. And I'll say to you, if you're in those categories, if you are a person who's gifted and powerful and maybe wealthy, there's nothing inherently bad in that. That's a gift from God to be received. But you need to know that in this place, in the Christian community, what God cares about, your value and identity is not found in those gifts and those abilities and those perks that you can give out but it's your character as a person of humility and lowliness that God values. And if you're not in those categories, maybe you feel like you've blown it in your life or you never had any advantages, or maybe you just feel like you're an outsider or your life is uneventful and seems unimportant. Know that in God's eyes and in God's community, your value and identity are not found in any of those human values, but in your conduct and character as a humble and lowly and gentle person of faith. That's so beautiful and good, isn't it? It's so beautiful and good. In this place, the values of God are turned upside down from those of the world. And I think Jesus' teaching here about the the humble and lowly and protecting those also means, friends, that in this Christian community, we must pursue the good of the little ones. We must value the humble and the lowly and the vulnerable, even if the world does not. And that means that we should be engaged in fighting against human trafficking. We should be standing for the human rights of the unborn. We should be caring for the poor and the needy, the less fortunate and those who are trapped in systemic structures of poverty. Those are not things that we add on to the gospel. That is what the Christian community does. That is what it means to be Christ's people on the earth, that we care about those people and those things, and we value them and we protect them. But Jesus doesn't stop there. That's the first thing he says about what the Christian community looks like. He goes on in verses 15 and following to give us something I think is even more challenging. That secondly, what life in the Christian community looks like is in living in relationships of forgiveness and reconciliation. Let me read for you starting in verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now those verses, those are actually very famous verses in Matthew. Matthew. And they're the ones that Christian leaders often use to try to figure out what to do in what we call a church discipline situation. And all that means is that sooner or later, there are going to be times in the church when church people do bad things, things that are clearly not in accordance with Christian teaching. And we can't, Jesus says, just ignore it or sweep it under the rug. Adulterous affairs, illegal activities, deception, recalcitrant behavior— deep and lasting conflicts of such a nature and degree that the matter uh, has to go to the elders of the church and they need to process it and figure out the right thing to do. The number one text of scripture that we go to to figure out how to handle those things in the church are these verses right here. And that's fine and right. Because the basic idea of how to handle church discipline situations can be derived from this text. So you first try to address the situation privately. If it doesn't get resolved that way, then you get some help from wise and godly counselors and leaders to help. If it's still not resolved, then it finally goes to the church leadership who takes it to the whole church for their recommendation. And that's all fine and good. And that's what we try to practice in those unfortunate situations here at Sojourn. And this is also what the following verses mean. And I always feel bad because I'm probably gonna burst some some bubbles here, but let me read these next verses and, and show you this is what they mean as well. Jesus says, "'Truly, I tell you, "'whatever you bind on earth will be loosed, bound in heaven, "'and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. "'Again, truly, I tell you "'that if two or three on earth agree "'about anything they ask for, "'it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. "'For where two or three are gathered in my name, "'there I am with them.'" Now, verse 19 especially is commonly read as sort of a promise to make us feel better if not very many people show up at the prayer meeting. (laughs) That's the sort of typical use for that. Well, if only two or three of us, God's still with us. Well, let me tell you, that's great. God is with you when only two or three people show up. Guess what? God's with you even only when one person shows up. Like you don't, there's no magic in having two or three people. But while that's true, that's not actually what these verses are getting at. They're saying the same thing that verses 15 to 17 were saying that when the church gathers together to decide on a, to make a, a render a judgment about what is right and wrong in a situation god is in that that god has given his authority to the church to make such decisions so that's that's what's going on in these verses that god is present with them in this and again that's all fine and good that way of reading matthew 18 makes total sense but i want to suggest to you that while that's a certainly very good application of what Jesus is saying here, I don't think it's the primary hottest spot of what Jesus is teaching. What, what, is, what are these verses primarily pointing us to? Well, I think it's Jesus saying that life together in the Christian community consists of relationships of forgiveness and reconciliation. Let me say that again. Life together in the Christian community consists of relationships of forgiveness and reconciliation. You see, back in verse 15, Jesus is moving into this second topic of what the Christian community life looks like, and he addresses this foundational, inevitable reality that we all have experienced, that sooner or later, someone is going to hurt you. Somebody in the church or out, but even in the church, someone's gonna slight someone else to wound you, to commit a sin against another Christian, large or small. Because you see, but becoming a Christian doesn't like all of a sudden remove all of our sinful practices and habits from our lives. We're all in a process. We're in a journey. We're on a sojourn of being redeemed, of being transformed, being transformed more into the image of God. And sooner or later, mature Christians, immature Christians, everywhere in between are going to make mistakes. We're gonna sin against one another. We're gonna do that intentionally, unintentionally, willfully, ignorantly. It's going to happen. It does happen. You know it, you've experienced it. Jesus is well aware of this. And after all, he's just had to deal with the disciples coming and saying, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? (laughs) I mean, he's totally aware of this kind of constant uh, self-centeredness. And so Jesus addresses this reality of life together among believers head on. And note what he doesn't say. Again, these are things that Jesus does not say about how to handle conflict. He doesn't say whoever's the cleverest and outwits the other person is right. He doesn't say whoever can get the most popularity votes his way, that person wins. He doesn't say just sweep everything under the rug, put a big smile on it, avoid conflict, act like everything is fine. He doesn't say just get over it. If somebody does wrong, then suck it up and forget it. He doesn't say it's okay if you have factions in the church, just avoid those people. And he doesn't say, just leave. If somebody hurts you, just take your toys and go to another church. None of those things are what Jesus says. Instead, what he says is the way of Jesus, the life together looks different. It's a committed life of committed relationships where we do the hard work of reconciling with each other and forgiving each other. And it is hard, both in marriages, parents to children, In friendship relationships, new and old, within the church, people you work with, it is hard. But the Christian life is one where you are committed to reconciling with each other. And notice again in verse 15 that the first step is to go to the person yourself and to try to reconcile. You're not going for the purpose of winning. You're not going to someone else to shame the other person. You're not going to yell at them so that you can get your emotions off your chest. You're not going demanding that your needs be met. You go with humility, the humility of childlikeness for the purpose of reconciling, for winning, not winning over them, but winning back the relationship. Now, from what I've read so far, you may not think that Jesus is talking about interpersonal relationships. You may think, no, he's talking about church discipline situations. And again, I think that's a, a fine application of this. But why, do I, why am I saying I think this is primarily about interpersonal relationships? Well, look at how Peter responds to it in the next verse, verse 21. After hearing Jesus say, th- say this, Peter says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? So Peter understands what Jesus is saying as being about someone, about these interpersonal relationships and the real life of the church that there's going to be conflict. We see it in the disciples themselves. They're constantly in conflict with each other. Large or small, rightly or wrongly, someone's going to hurt somebody else. And good old Peter, wholehearted Peter, he steps up with an amazing, super mature response. He says, I'm basically willing to forgive someone even seven times. And I imagine... He's pretty proud of himself with this very generous and gracious attitude. And I imagine the rest of the disciples gasping, wow, bold move, Peter. Maybe some of them are thinking, dang, he scored another point for who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That was a killer answer. Seven times, that's amazing. And in fact, seven times is a remarkably mature stance to be willing to forgive someone. Think of a time when someone has wronged you. Maybe you heard that someone gossiped about you behind your back. That hurts. Maybe someone said they were going to do something nice for you and then they just blew you off and acted like it was no big deal. Maybe someone said that you were a a friend and then they treated you rudely or ignored you for a month. Maybe someone at work intentionally misrepresents you, tries to get you in trouble with your boss. Maybe your husband or wife made fun of you meanly in front of your friends. You fill in the blank. When these things happen, it is very difficult to forgive someone even once. It's hard. But let's imagine something like that happens to you, and then the person apologizes and repents, and and you really work through it, and, and you forgive them, and you're reconciled. And and then what if they did it again? Imagine the pain of that and then how hard it would be to forgive someone a second time. And but let's say you find the strength to do by the power of the spirit and you reconcile and they apologize. And then it happened again. I think few of us would be okay with that. I think one's probably the max for us. So Peter's seven times is actually a pretty amazing response. And then look what Jesus says back to him in verse 22. I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. (laughs) What? And we need to make sure we understand what Jesus is saying. Some of your translations say 77, some say 70 times seven. The Greek expression can be interpreted either way. Either way, the point is shockingly clear. It's uncountable times. Jesus is not saying Yeah, 77 times, 78th time or 491st time, they're out. That's not the point at all. The point is that he's saying to Peter and to us, you want to understand how much you should forgive and reconcile those who wrong you? Really, do you want to know? Unlimited. That seems a little radical. I mean, come on, Jesus, is this really biblical to forgive that much? Well, Jesus answers that question in the parable that follows in verses 23 to 35. This is one of the longest parables in Matthew, and it is a very powerful one. You may have heard it before, you may not have, but you're not going to forget it once you do. I thought I I could paraphrase it for you, but I thought, let me just read it for you. This is Jesus' response to Peter about how radical forgiveness should be. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. And he wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And so he began the settlement and a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, there's no way he could pay that. The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had had be sold to repay the debt, a very common thing in ancient Near Eastern cultures. And at this, the servant fell on his knees before him and he said, be patient with me. I will pay back everything. And the servant's master Took pity on him, he had compassion on him, and he canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, then he found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred silver coins, and he grabbed him and began to choke him. He said, Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him with the same words Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Now, when the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told the master, told the king everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in and he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And in anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This Is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, with a lot of Jesus' parables, we can read them and we're not sure exactly what they mean unless he interprets them. This one, we don't need an interpretation, it's right there. God, who is the merciful king in this story, if he is compassionately and mercifully willing to forgive us a massive debt, and think about what your debt is, every single thing you've done wrong, all the sins against God, all the sins against other creatures made in his image, things that you're aware of, things that you're not aware of, is, if God is happily willing to forgive us all that debt, how much more must we be willing to forgive someone else when they've sinned against us? Because if you think about it, friends, no matter how bad of a sin against us it is, it can't even begin to compare to what God has forgiven us. This is what Jesus is saying. And that last line of the parable is disturbing, and it should be disturbing. The point of saying, this is how my heavenly Father will treat you, the point is not that God is this mechanistic, vengeful person uh, that's, there's nothing in the Bible that would indicate that. But rather, the point is that those who are unwilling to live in relationships of reconciliation and forgiveness, those who are unwilling to forgive others, show themselves to be no part of understanding God's forgiveness. The people who understand how much sin I have been forgiven by God, we know what it is to forgive others. And to the degree to which you understand God's forgiveness of you, as you see yourself clearly, that is the degree to which you can forgive others. To err is human. To forgive is Christian. Now there's one thing I need to say that I feel very burdened to say, so just hear me clearly. And that is that one thing Jesus is not saying in this radical claim to forgiveness is that if you're a woman or a man who is being physically or sexually abused, that you just need to forgive the perpetrator and endure the abuse. There is a place for justice. And if that is your situation today, I beg of you, if you're a child or a husband or a wife or anyone else, I beg of you, come to the elders and we will help you. It's the one situation where I want to make sure it's very clear that you don't fall into a misunderstanding. But in all the rest of our lives, all situations, the general call of the Christian life is that we be people who live in relationships of forgiveness. So what about you? I would imagine you're probably aware of something in your heart right now. You're aware of some slight, something you've done or something that's been done to you. If we're hearing Jesus today, and we want to be his disciples and trust that his ways alone will give us life. How do we do this? Well, when you're aware that you've hurt someone or someone has hurt or sinned against you, whether it's a friend at school, especially you teenagers and others, maybe it's a husband or wife, I know that's happening, parents to children, kids to parents, someone at work, someone two rows up from you at church, an old friend, a new friend, what do you do? Well, you make, you take the step and you make wise and loving efforts to reconcile and to forgive. You don't just stew about it. You don't give yourself over to resentment, which is drinking a vial of poison, expecting the other person to die. You don't gossip about it and complain about it to make yourself feel better. You don't seek to get back at the person overtly or subtly. You follow Christ's way, which is the way of forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, I hope you understand, especially if you have a very sensitive conscience, this doesn't mean if somebody cuts you off in traffic that you honk and pull them over so you can say, I forgive you for that. That's probably a dangerous thing. Don't do that, right? And it also doesn't mean that every slight offense that you might feel or every misunderstanding means that you have to call a reconciliation meeting or an intervention, right? doesn't mean that. We should all remember Proverbs 19.11. A person's wisdom yields patience. It's to one's glory to overlook an offense. In many cases, (laughs) you should just forgive and you don't have to make a big intervention about it. But if there is a rift between you and someone else that's keeping you from the love and the wholehearted embrace of life, then you need to go today, maybe in childlike humility and patch things up. You own your part of whatever the situation is and you kindly express what you've experienced. Counselors and therapists help us with some techniques in this. You, you use I statements, not blaming you statements. You don't go, you did this, you're bad, you were wrong, but you own what you can and express what you think has happened you exercise reflective listening when you're in a conversation with someone you you try to repeat back to them kindly to show and to understand that you understand what they're saying and we should remember James 1 to be slow to speak and quick to listen and we remember that we don't have to wait for the other person to initiate well I'm not going to forgive them till they do x Christ's way is that when we were dead in our sins He reconciled with us by making us alive. And so too, we walk in his ways. And friends, this is difficult, but it is so beautiful. And it is so good because the alternatives, the alternatives of living a life of resentment and vengeance and hatred and isolation and bitterness, which is how most people live their lives, I think. That alternative is so destructive, so sad for generations of brokenness and there is no life there. But Jesus' way, it's a difficult, narrow way, but it is a beautiful way to live in humility in relationships of forgiveness and reconciliation. It is beautiful and it is good and you will find life there and nowhere else. And I'll end today with a a vision that comes from the deeply thoughtful theologian Miroslav Volf in his famous book, Exclusion and Embrace. Now, Volf is a Croatian from the former communist nation of Yugoslavia, who then became a longtime professor of theology at Yale. In the early 1990s, Yugoslavia was the site of a brutal civil war between various ethnic groups, the Serbians, the Bosnians, and as you may know, it was violent and horrible each group demonized the others in, a, in really a very dark example of the social identity theory where, that we talked about at the beginning, that, that the other becomes this person to hate in this stereotyped way. Well, Wolf wrote his book, Exclusion and Embrace, to process as a Christian theologian his own experience of this and, and how to think about conflicts like this uh, in, as a Christian. And he notes that the gospel teaches us not to just learn to live with one another, but to actually take the costly step of opening ourselves to embrace the other. Because God himself doesn't relate to us by just saying, well, I'll just learn to live with them. But God embraces us. And so Wolf gives these four moves that he describes that I want to get stuck in your head of the act of embracing one with whom you've had a conflict. And the four moves are these. We put them on a slide here. The first is simply opening our arms. Not relating to people like this. Either physically, when you see somebody standing talking to you like this, (laughs) that's a pretty good sign they're a little closed up. Now you're all gonna be paranoid after the service as you're talking like this, but it's a pretty good sign they're closed up. And even if you don't physically do this, husbands and wives, is this how your heart is towards your spouse today? I think it might be. The way of Christ is to open your arms. To be open to the other in forgiveness. And then the second step is waiting. Waiting. Because you actually can't force reconciliation. You can forgive someone, but reconciliation must be reciprocal. And so you wait. And sometimes it takes a long time. You wait. And then when there is an opportunity for reconciliation, you close your arms around the other person, and you become one. You go from separation to connection to embrace. And then finally, you open your arms because you preserve. You're not enmeshed. Your identities are not the same. You respect their space. You respect their difference. You don't have to agree on everything. But you then go back to a life of openness. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus' way. This is the way of Jesus' community of people. This is how he treats us, and it's how he invites us to treat each other. So I invite you today. I invite you today to pay attention to what's going on in your heart even now and to step towards, maybe with some help from Christ's community, but to step towards living in humility and in these relationships of forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.